Coffee Break Collection 15, The World of Work. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Robert Robinson. Development of the Phonograph at Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory by Leslie J. Newville. The fame of Thomas A. Edison rests most securely on his genius for making practical application of the ideas of others. However, it was Alexander Graham Bell, long a Smithsonian regent and friend of its third secretary, S. P. Langley, who, with his Volta Laboratory associates, made practical the phonograph, which has been called Edison's most original invention. The author, Leslie J. Newville wrote this paper while he was attached to the Office of the Curator of Science and Technology in the Smithsonian Institution's United States National Museum. The story of Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone has been told and retold. How he became involved in the difficult task of making practical phonograph records and succeeded, in association with Charles Sumner Tainter and Chichester Bell, is not so well known but material collected through the years by the U.S. National Museum of the Smithsonian Institution now makes clear how Bell and two associates took Edison's tinfoil machine and made it reproduce sound from wax instead of tinfoil. They began their work in Washington, D.C. in 1879 and continued until granted basic patents in 1886 for recording in wax. Preserved at the Smithsonian are some 20 pieces of experimental apparatus, including a number of complete machines. Their first experimental machine was sealed in a box and deposited in the Smithsonian Archives in 1881. The others were delivered by Alexander Graham Bell to the National Museum in two lots in 1915 and 1922. Bell was an old man by this time, busy with his aeronautical experiments in Nova Scotia. It was not until 1947, however, that the museum received the key to the experimental gramophones, as they were called, to differentiate them from the Edison machine. In that year, Mrs. Laura F. Tainter donated to the museum ten bound notebooks, along with Tainter's unpublished autobiography. This material describes in detail the strange machines and even stranger experiments, which led in 1886 to a greatly improved phonograph. Thomas A. Edison had invented the phonograph in 1877, but the fame bestowed on Edison for this startling invention, sometimes called his most original, was not due to its efficiency. Recording with the tinfoil phonograph is too difficult to be practical. The tinfoil tears easily, and even when the stylus is properly adjusted, the reproduction is distorted and squeaky, and good for only a few playbacks. Nevertheless, young Edison, the wizard as he was called, had hit upon a secret of which men had dreamed for centuries. Immediately after this discovery, however, he did not improve it, allegedly because of an agreement to spend the next five years developing the New York City electric light and power system. Meanwhile, Bell, always a scientist and experimenter at heart, after his invention of the telephone in 1876, was looking for new worlds to conquer. If we accept Tainter's version of the story, it was through Gardner Green Hubbard that Bell took up the phonograph challenge. Bell had married Hubbard's daughter, Mabel, in 1879. Hubbard was then president of the Edison Speaking Phonograph Company, and his organization, which had purchased the Edison patent, was having trouble with its finances because people did not like to buy a machine which seldom worked well and proved difficult for an unskilled person to operate. In 1879, Hubbard got Bell interested in improving the machine, and it was agreed that a laboratory should be set up in Washington. 
Experiments were also to be conducted in the transmission of sound by light, and this resulted in the selenium cell photophone, patented in 1881. Both the Hubbards and the Bells decided to move to the capital. While Bell took his bride to Europe for an extended honeymoon, his associate, Charles Sumner Tainter, a young instrument maker, was sent on to Washington from Cambridge, Massachusetts to start the laboratory. Bell's cousin, Chichester Bell, who had been teaching college chemistry in London, agreed to come as the third associate. During his stay in Europe, Bell received a 50,000 franc, $10,000, Volta Prize, and it was with this money that the Washington Project, the Volta Laboratory Association, was financed. A description of the procedure used is found on page 67 of Tainter's unpublished autobiography. There, Tainter quotes Chichester Bell as follows. Quote, a gel of bichromate of potash solution, vibrated by the voice, was directed against a glass plate immediately in front of a slit, on which light was concentrated by means of a lens. The jet was so arranged that the light on its way to the slit had to pass through the nap, and as the thickness of this was constantly changing, the illumination of the slit was also varied. By means of a lens, an image of this slit was thrown upon the rotating gelatin bromide plate, on which, accordingly, a record of the voice vibrations was obtained." Unquote. Tainter's story in his autobiography of the establishment of the laboratory shows its comparative simplicity. I therefore wound up my business affairs in Cambridge, packed up all of my tools and machines, and went to Washington, and after much search, rented a vacant house on L Street between 13th and 14th Streets, and fitted it up for our purposes. The Smithsonian Institution sent us over a mail sack of scientific books from the library of the institution to consult, and, primed with all we could learn, we went to work. We were like the explorers in an entirely unknown land, where one has to select the path that seems to be the most likely to get you to your destination, with no knowledge of what is ahead. In conducting our work, we had first to design an experimental apparatus, then hunt about, often in Philadelphia and New York, for the materials with which to construct it which were usually hard to find, and finally build the models we needed ourselves. The experimental machines built at the Volta Laboratory included both disc and cylinder types, and an interesting tape recorder. The records used with the machines and now in the collections of the U.S. National Museum are believed to be the oldest reproducible records preserved anywhere in the world. While some are scratched and cracked, others are still in good condition. By 1881, the Volta Associates had succeeded in improving an Edison tinfoil machine to some extent. Wax was put in the grooves of the heavy iron cylinder, and no tinfoil was used. Rather than apply for a patent at that time, however, they deposited the machine in a sealed box at the Smithsonian and specified that it was not to be opened without the consent of two of the three men. In 1937, Tainter was the only one still living, so the box was opened with his permission. For the occasion, the heirs of Alexander Graham Bell gathered in Washington, but Tainter was too old and too ill to come from San Diego. The sound vibrations had been indented in the wax which had been applied to the Edison phonograph. The following is the text of the recording. Quote, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamed of in your philosophy. I am a gramophone, and my mother was a phonograph. Unquote. Remarked Mrs. Gilbert Grosvenor, Bell's daughter, when the box was opened in 1837, quote, That is just the sort of thing father would have said. He was always quoting from the classics. Unquote. The method of reproduction used on the machine, however, is even more interesting than the quotation. 
rather than a stylus and diaphragm, a jet of air under high pressure was used. Quote, this evening about 7 p.m., Tainter noted on July 7, 1881, the apparatus being ready, the valve upon the top of the air cylinder was opened slightly until a pressure of about 100 pounds was indicated by the gauge. The phonograph cylinder was then rotated, and the sounds produced by the escaping air could be heard, and the words understood a distance of at least 8 feet from the phonograph. Unquote. The point of the jet is glass, and could be directed at a single groove. The other experimental gramophones indicate an amazing range of experimentation. While the method of cutting a record on wax was the one later exploited commercially, everything else seems to have been tried at least once. The following was noted on Wednesday, March 20, 1881. Quote, a fountain pen is attached to a diaphragm so as to be vibrated in a plane parallel to the axis of a cylinder. The ink used in this pen to contain iron in a finely divided state and the pen caused to trace a spiral line around the cylinder as it turned. The cylinder to be covered with a sheet of paper upon which the record is made. This ink can be rendered magnetic by means of a permanent magnet. The sounds were to be reproduced by simply substituting a magnet for the fountain pen. Unquote. The result of these ideas for magnetic reproduction resulted in patent 341287, granted on May 4, 1886. It deals solely with the, quote, reproduction through the action of magnetism of sounds by means of records in solid substances, unquote. The air jet used in reproducing has already been described. Other jets of molten metal, wax, and water were also tried. On Saturday, May 19, 1883, Tainter wrote, Made the following experiment today. The cylinder of the Edison photograph was covered with a coating of paraffin wax and then turned off true and smooth. A cutting style, A, secured by the end of a lever, B, was then adjusted over the cylinder, as shown. Lever B was pivoted at the points C, D, and the only pressure exerted to force the style into the wax was due to the weight of the parts. Upon the top of A was fixed a small brass disc, and immediately over it a sensitive water jet adjusted, so that the stream of water at its sensitive part fell upon the center of the brass disc. The phonograph cylinder, E, was rotated while words and sounds were shouted to the support to which the water jet was attached and a record that was quite visible to the unaided eye was the result. The tape recorder, an unusual instrument which recorded mechanically on a 3 inch strip of wax-covered paper, is one of the machines described and illustrated in U.S. Patent 341214, dated May 4, 1886. The strip was coated by dipping it in a solution of beeswax and paraffin, one part white beeswax, two parts paraffin by weight, then scraping one side clean and allowing the other side to harden. The machine of sturdy wood and metal construction is hand-powered by means of a knob fastened to the flywheel. From the flywheel, shaft power is transferred by a small friction wheel to a vertical shaft. At the bottom of the shaft, a V-pulley transfers motion by belts to corresponding V-pulleys beneath the horizontal reels. The wax strip passes from one 8-inch reel around the periphery of a pulley with guided flanges, mounted above the V-pulleys on the main vertical shaft, where it comes in contact with the recording or reproducing stylus. It is then taken up on the other reel. The sharp recording stylus, actuated by a vibrating mica diaphragm, cuts the wax from the strip. In reproducing, a dull, loosely mounted stylus attached to a rubber diaphragm carried sounds through an ear tube to the listener. Both recording and reproducing heads, mounted alternately on the same two posts, could be adjusted vertically so that several records could be cut on the same 3 inch strip. While this machine was never developed commercially, it is an interesting ancestor of the modern tape recorder, which it resembles somewhat in design. How practical it was, or just why it was built, we do not know. The tape is now brittle, the heavy paper reels warped, 
and the reproducing head missing. Otherwise, with some reconditioning, it could be put into working condition. Most of the disc machines designed by the Volta Associates had the disc mounted vertically. The explanation is that in the early experiments, the turntable with disc was mounted on the shop lathe, along with the recording and reproducing heads. Later, when the complete models were built, most of them featured vertical turntables. An interesting exception has a horizontal 7-inch turntable. This machine, although made in 1886, is a duplicate of one made earlier but taken to Europe by Chichester Bell. Tainter was granted U.S. Patent 385886 for it on July 10, 1888. The playing arm is rigid except for a pivoted vertical motion of 90 degrees to allow removal of the record or a return to the starting position. While recording or playing, the record not only rotated, but moved laterally under the stylus, which thus described a spiral, recording 150 grooves to the inch. The Bell and Tainter records preserved at the Smithsonian are both of the lateral cut and Hill and Dale types. Edison, for many years, used the Hill and Dale method with both cylinder and disc records, and Emil Berliner is credited with the invention of the lateral cut gramophone record in 1887. The Volta Associates, however, had been experimenting with both types as early as 1881, as is shown by the following quotation from Tainter. The record on the electrotype in the Smithsonian package is of the other form, where the vibrations are impressed parallel to the surface of the recording material, as was done in the Old Scott phonograph of 1857, thus forming a groove of uniform depth but of wavy character, in which the sides of the groove act upon the tracing point instead of the bottom, as is the case of the vertical type. This form we named the zigzag form, and referred to it in that way in our notes. Its important advantage in guiding the reproducing needle I first called attention to in the note on page 9, volume 1, Home Notes on March 29, 1881, and endeavored to use it in my early work, but encountered so much difficulty in getting a form of reproducer that would work with the soft wax records without tearing the groove, we used the hill and valley type of record more often than the other. In 1885, when the Volta Associates were sure that they had a number of practical inventions, they filed applications for patents. They also began to look around for investors. After giving several demonstrations in Washington, they gained the necessary support, and the American Gramophone Company was organized to manufacture and sell the machines. The Volta Gramophone Company was formed to control the patents. The Howe Sewing Machine Factory at Bridgeport, Connecticut became the American Gramophone Plant. Tainter went there to supervise the manufacturing, and continued his inventive work for many years. This bridgeboard plant is still in use today by a successor firm, the Dictaphone Corporation. The work of the Volta Associates laid the foundation for the successful use of the dictating machine in business, for their wax recording process was practical and their machines sturdy. But it was to take several more years and the renewed work of Edison and further developments by Berliner and many others before the talking machine industry really got underway and became a major factor in home entertainment. End of Development of the Phonograph at Alexander Graham Bell's Volta Laboratory Recording by Robert Robinson